Welcome to the Unrestricted Movie Podcast with Josh and Ryan. I am one of your co-hosts, Ryan. And of course, I'm the other half. The better half? Oh, damn. Just half, gonna... <laughs> just half of the half? Can I have a competition here? Yeah, well, our other... Our uh, listeners will let us know. <laughs> Let's go. Can we get, like, Twitter followers or something to, like... You know, I vote? do not... I, I, I just don't want to compete with you, man. No, it's not a competition. I'm, I'm the other half. We say that. I'm the other half, Josh, <laughs> after totally torching Ryan. Sorry. Josh, how are you feeling, man? I'm feeling pretty good. We're uh, recording this episode back-to-back with our previous episode, Atomic Blonde, just behind the curtains. You never know when you're going to get to see behind the curtain. Anything can happen. <laughs> okay, well, cut that shit out. Woo! <laughs> are we talking about behind your curtains? Or? No. Don't peek behind the curtains. <laughs> I think we need to redo everything. No, I think this is good. I think we're keeping it. Marissa, oh, God, yeah. Marissa, our new editor, will choose what to keep in. Uh, no, but we're a few beers in and a few hours in, uh, recording a new episode for today's film. What are we going to be talking about today, Josh? Pulp Fiction. 1994's Pulp Fiction, directed by Quentin Tarantino. Let me just tell you, straight up, this is one of my favorite films of all time. Was this was this an all a life altering movie for you, Ryan? Life altering, <sighs> or Explain just movie movie mean. watching? Alter- like, did this have a, an effect mm. on your life, or even just how you perceive films? When it comes to me as a cinephile, yeah, and and I don't like using that word because people think weird things when I say cinephile. Well, we know what you're talking about. A person that loves movies, right? <laughs> to the extreme. Cinephile. <laughs> Just peek behind the curtain and you'll see. So, yeah, this is uh, a turning point for me. I would say in my film watching, in my cinematic history, I saw this as a preteen. <laughs> okay. This is the movie that introduced me to Quentin Tarantino. And this movie just has so much inspiration in other forms of media and, you know, other, you know, shows, you know, there's references to it everywhere, you know, Mm -hmm. including The Simpsons, which references everything. Every, literally everything. (laughs) You know, I went to the McDonald's in uh, Shelbyville on Friday night. Must have sprung up overnight. It's the little differences. Example. Well, at McDonald's, you can buy a Krusty Burger with cheese, right? But they don't call it a Krusty Burger with cheese. Get out. Quarter pounder with cheese? Do they have crusty, partially gelatinated, non-dairy, gum-based beverages? They call them shakes. <laughs> shakes. I don't know what you're getting. Yeah, this movie just inspired a lot of directors, inspired, uh, I don't know, I don't know. It's a good movie. So, obviously, I have never seen this movie up until today. Yeah. So, I mean, what what are the things that stood out to you just the, about the film in general as a preteen watching this movie? When I first watched it? Okay, so... That you, I mean, the, I mean it, it introduced me to a lot of things that I wasn't exposed to previously. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of... Male nudity? There's a lot of debauchery in this film. Um, I was introduced to the concept of taking hard drugs, such oh, as heroin. Yeah. And, you know, there's some people that think that this film glorifies heroin use, mm-hmm. but I would argue that the way it depicts heroin use, especially with the the possibility of OD. That was pretty jarring. I would say that after watching this movie, one wouldn't say, oh, I want to go and try heroin. <laughs> no, I don't think, <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> Didn't do it for me either. Right. So, wait, so our parents were wrong, Ryan? It's okay to watch hardcore drugs and sex and swears and stuff on film? I think this movie does a better job of deterring someone from a life of crime and drug use better than most educational films would. Better than a dare officer. <laughs> Let's say that. <laughs> Back to the dare officer. <laughs> you know, I... I think I agree with you, although no need to limit our education to any one particular method. But yeah, I mean, if I had seen this movie as a teenager, I would have been zero interested in hardcore drugs or any of that stuff. But I also would have been scared shitless probably because, you know, I wasn't allowed to watch this kind of stuff as a kid. Right. And this film is very stylized, right? I mean, there's a lot of just the editing and the the way the shots are set up, the credits, just everything is very stylized. The dialogue, <laughs> it's all very stylized in this film. Right. 
So just a little behind the scenes, I have a, a few tidbits I want to mention. So Vincent Vega, the role played by John Travolta. Uh, what do you think of John Travolta's character in this film? He's interesting. He wasn't my favorite character, but I, I enjoy I enjoyed the performance. He did a, a killer job with this role. Yeah, this so. uh, role kind of re- revitalized his career. I think he was doing like the look Phenom- who's, the Look Who's Talking movies at uh, this point. Was this before or after Phenomenon? I think before. Yeah, I, yeah. I vaguely remember that movie. But Quentin Tarantino had originally wanted Michael Madsen as the part of Vincent Vega for this role. Mm-hmm. But he was busy with the Wyatt Earp movie. Do you know who Michael Madsen is? I am not too familiar with him. You've seen the movie Reservoir Dogs, right? By oh. Quentin Tarantino? Yeah, is he the psycho guy in Reservoir Dogs? He's the Dogs? psycho guy who cuts off the guy's oh, ear. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah, so although, you know, sheltered as I am, um, and we have a rated R list that we, we like to follow for these podcasts, uh, I decided, you know, I wasn't going to wait to delve into Quentin Tarantino yeah. movies. And so, I yes, I have recently seen Reservoir Dogs, and God, it was an interesting film. Anyway, we don't need to go into all of it, but... Yeah, so so Pulp Fiction would be the second Tarantino film that you've seen. So this is... Yeah, this is my second one. Okay. You haven't seen Kill Bill yet? No Kill Bill. Okay. Is the samurai sword, is that like a little Easter egg from Pulp Fiction? Is that, have? is there any like, or does Quentin Tarantino just really like samurai swords or? That's a good question. So Quentin Tarantino is like a huge fan of kung fu movies. And oh, okay. kung fu references and samurai swords and, you know, these Eastern references are always referenced in his movies. Oh, okay. He wrote his first script working in a, a movie rental shop. Nice. And so, I mean, he's very versed in cinema. Yeah. Right. Especially like obscure, like black exploitation movies mm-hmm. and just Eastern Kung Fu movies, basically. Okay. Nice. Yeah. I, I mentioned that Michael Madsen turned down the role of Vincent Vega. Quentin Tarantino, in an interview in 2004, mentioned that he wanted to do a Vega Brothers series with John Travolta <laughs> and Michael Madsen in the roles. <laughs> Which, if you've watched Pulp Fiction and know what happens to Vincent Vega's character, doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, I don't know <laughs> how they'd be doing that with some alternative universe or back, you know. Right. Because hmm. spoilers, <laughs> well, Vincent Vega dies in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> so how, how on earth would... would it would have to be that? some sort of a prequel spinoff then. Mm-hmm. Right. Obviously. And yeah. an, another actor that turned down this movie was Lawrence Fishburne, who uh, Quentin Tarantino wanted as the role of Jules. Oh, I would have thought the ro- uh, to have him be the role of Marcellus. I think he would have made a good war- Marcellus just yeah. based on his role as uh, Morpheus. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, Lawrence Fishburne turned down this role because of what I said earlier. He thought this movie glorified the use of heroin. <laughs> okay, well, thank God for Sam Jackson because... Hell yeah. That was my favorite performance of the movie he by still far. This movie. Yeah. Sam Jackson with his Jerry Curls in this movie. <laughs> Dude, right on, man. With like pieces of brain and stuff stuck in it. You know, that's <laughs> fantastic. Oh, that's a killer scene. <laughs> you know, Uma Thurman's in this movie. She's kind of Quentin Tarantino's muse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he kind of has a, a thing for her and her feet, if you don't know. <laughs> oh. Have they ever been in a relationship? He has like a foot fetish and especially, you know, loves showing her feet on camera. They've she never... does take off her shoes in this movie. You know, she, she had a long-term relationship with Ethan Hawke and they have a daughter okay. together who was on, the daughters on Stranger Things. Oh, I didn't um, know that. In the second season. No, I don't think she's ever been in a relationship that hasn't been platonic with... Oh, okay. I just know, you know, you've often talked about how uh, directors and their stars, you know... I'm sure he wanted stuff, it. So, okay. Well, right, I'm sure Quentin wanted a relationship with her, but, you know, okay. he's kind of a strange character. <laughs> yeah, and, and also appears in this movie. He's in this movie, so... <laughs> a couple more. Ellen DeGeneres read for the part of Jody, the drug dealer's wife. <laughs> that would have been interesting. <laughs> but I don't, I don't think okay. she could be bossed around. She kind of likes to boss other people around. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> I don't know what to say about that. All right. Uh, a couple more tidbits. <laughs> Tarantino and producer Roger Avery were working on a project together before this movie called Black Mask. And Tarantino's contribution to that script was turned into Reservoir Dogs. 
And Roger oh. Avery's contribution to that script was the basis for the Bruce Willis storyline in this movie. Oh, oh, cool. That's a cool connection. And so they could have been, you know, a volume one, volume two. Yeah. The Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. Okay. But yeah, Pulp Fiction is basically just, it's kind of like a book, right? It's the way it's formatted. Well, like a book of short stories is almost like a comp- compilation of short stories or vignettes like an anthology almost that where the stories are interconnected right right there's three main stories right i saw this movie today i was mentioning to you before the podcast i saw it on pluto tv where the only copy of the movie they had was in spanish which luckily i can understand spanish so but but it's interesting the way they translated some things like like mia's joke about the ketchup Uh, yeah vincent do you want to hear my fox force five joke Sure, except I think I'm still a little too petrified to laugh. No, you won't laugh because it's not funny. But if you still want to hear it, I'll tell it. I can't wait. Okay. Three tomatoes are walking down the street. Papa tomato, mama tomato, and baby tomato. Baby tomato starts lagging behind, and Papa tomato gets really angry. Goes back and squishes him, says, ketchup. Mm-hmm. Ketchup. See you around. They didn't. They didn't translate it to make sense in Spanish. They just translated it directly, mm-hmm. so it doesn't make any sense. Oh. Wait, is it ketchup or ketchup? In in Spanish, ketchup. Ketchup. <laughs> right. Very nice. And it's a lie. Bueno. Would say ketchup. Right. <laughs> in some Spanish cultures, they just say ketchup. Mm. The voice yeah. you're hearing is uh, <laughs> my wife, Haiti. She's from the Dominican Republic, and they say ketchup. Very nice. <laughs> Muy bueno. So we get this at the beginning of the movie. Did you have anything else to say about, like, I guess the general aesthetic of the film? Or Oh, dude, like, th- this movie had me right from the opening credits with the famous music. Jungle Boogie. I... No, not Jungle Boogie. <laughs> oh, the one before that. Yeah, but I'm not going to sing it again make an ass of myself right. like I did last time. Dick Dell's uh, surf music, right? The, yes. The surf... <laughs> So was that made for this movie, or did it somehow exist before? And they, I you know, believe it. it existed before. He he likes to pick these really obscure albums, like for Kill Bill, for uh-huh. example. He saw this Japanese girl band, and he incorporated them into the film. Is that like the whistling thing? Do 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 do. I don't know. Oh, maybe, whatever. Maybe I can get a copy, but um, he's very into surf music. He's very into these like old fifties bands. Yeah. Which we can see later on in the film in the oh, diner That's scene, true. That's you know? true. With a young Steve Buscemi. Yeah. Playing, <laughs> playing Buddy, Buddy Holly. Holly. <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah, like that that riff is just iconic. Like it, I've heard it many times with, having never seen this movie. It's the part of pop culture now. So yeah. um, that just did it for me, man. With, with, and like the, just the large yellow lettering. And I don't know. There's something about just the beginning credits that had me into this movie yeah just the fonts he chooses for the credits like it's amazing that we're just talking about I mean, credits but look at that font ryan <laughs> it, it was like like he uses that for a lot of his films <laughs> but it, it's just really good the way he presents the credits with this radio music playing in the background and we we find out it is the radio because it it, it switches from the surf music to jungle boogie right 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 and then the first scene is Jules and Vincent in the car talking to each other. Dude, and can I just say, I know we're going to get into it, like just the dialogue in this movie and the, the banter between John Travolta and Sam Jackson. I could watch two hours of just those two dudes <laughs> sitting in a diner or sitting in a car talking like, about arguing Walmart. with each other, yeah. talking about the royal with cheese. Royale with cheese. And you know what they call a, a quarter pounder with cheese uh, in Paris? They don't call it a quarter pounder with cheese? Oh, man, they got the metric system. They wouldn't know what the fuck a quarter pounder is. And what do they call it? They call it the Royale with cheese. Royale with cheese. That's right. What do they call a Big Mac? Big Mac's a Big Mac, but they call it Le Big Mac. Le Big Mac. <laughs> what do they call a Whopper? I don't know. I didn't go on a Burger King. Yeah. I say the same thing it's about... It's so good, um, man. Doctor Strange and... Although I will, I will oh, say for, for anyone who has ever been to a McDonald's in Europe, so much better yeah. than in the United States. Really? Right. So, you know, as you know, I've I've traveled a little bit and I've yeah. been to Ukraine. Dude, McDonald's in Ukraine is like the top echelon of restaurants. Like you go there for a nice evening meal. 
pop a bottle of champagne out on the patio and enjoy your big mick or mick nuggets yeah it's very nice uh hey you mentioned uh doctor strange and iron man the way they have dialogue in the marvel <laughs> movies oh yeah. yeah yeah i think vincent vega and jules they have a similar repertoire like just the way they go back and forth i don't know how much of this was improv but i think a lot of this was oh, scripted had, by quentin was it really yeah i mean it was it was just the best pigs are filthy animals i don't eat filthy animals yeah but bacon tastes good Sewer rat may taste like pumpkin pie, but I'd never know because I wouldn't eat the filthy motherfucker. Pigs sleep and root and shit. I ain't eat nothing, ain't got sense enough to disregard its own feces. How about a dog? Dog eats its own feces. I don't eat dog either. Yeah, but do you consider a dog to be a filthy animal? They're definitely dirty. Dogs got personality. Personality goes the wrong way. So by that rationale, if a pig had a better personality, he'd cease to be a filthy animal. Well, we have to be talking about one charming motherfucking pig. For me. It's really he's really good at dialogue. I don't know how he is as a social person. Like he seems kind of awkward to me, but I, I don't know. Like he's very good at writing dialogue. Like he he could I I'm sure he could be a stand-up comedian. Like he could just sit up there and have dialogue and like just go for it. So it's interesting. Are you familiar with who Phil Lamar is? No. Okay, Phil Lamar is the black guy in the apartment when they go to pick up oh, the briefcase. Oh, okay, yeah. The guy that's shot later on. Yeah. Right? He is famous for being on Mad TV, right? Uh-huh. Okay, so he was put into this film because him and Quentin were in an improv group together. Well, there you go. So you said Quentin <laughs> could have been a, a stand-up comedian. He, he was, was a stand-up comedian. He was an improv. Well, it shows in the dialogue because I don't know how he comes up with Royal Burgers and all. like, But it's just so good to watch. I don't yeah. know. I just love it. Like I said. Uh, before we get to Jules and Vern, we're uh, treated to this screen where it gives us the two definitions of pulp. Right. right. And I think this is very... It's more deep than what it seems. Like, I'm sure there's some extra layers of meaning behind it. Well, let's. So the first definition says a soft, moist, shapeless mass of matter. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of so, what this movie is: a soft, moist, shapeless mass of matter. It's, it's kind of just this all this blob of things mushed together. Yeah, these stories <laughs> kind of just melding together, right? Yeah. And then the second definition is a magazine or book containing lurid subject matter and being characteristically printed on rough, unfinished paper. Well, there you go. That's like, exactly what this movie is. Yeah, considering, especially how this movie was made, you know, on a shoestring budget, you know, he had just made Reservoir Dogs. Uh, he wasn't given much of a budget to make this film. He did partner with, this is where we have to go into dark, gross territory. He, he did partner with the Weinstein right. Company. Who gave him money to make this film? But yeah, just like the way it's it says uh, printed on rough, unfinished paper. Mm. It's kind of like how he wrote the screenplay for this right. film. Right? Yeah, but I, you know, <laughs> you know what the sad thing is is that when you said pulp, now after watching the movie, I thought way more literally, just to the scene where they literally have human pulp all over them. Oh. <laughs> This so brain matter I mean, all over the place of the interior of the car. Yeah, yeah, that was pretty crazy. Um, but so also pulp. There you go, Ryan. <laughs> the scenes of this movie are presented out of chronological order. Um, mm -hmm. It's a very, like we said, a very dialogue-heavy film. Just a lot of the scenes kind of carry on, but but you're interested. You, you right. get pulled into the movie through the dialogue. Well, it's funny because about an hour into the movie, I wrote down, what's the plot? <laughs> and I'm still not really sure what is the plot Although the way that he arranges the scenes, it really comes together in, in the end. Right. So for a movie to have, like, what is the definition of a plot for you? Like for I a guess, movie to, to have a plot, yeah. what would a plot mean to you? For me, a plot would be like a storyline moving along with events and, you know, an up and down. Would it necessarily have to have a three-act structure? Not necessarily, but I think that's what I'm most used to as a film watcher. Right. Uh, Tarantino, he breaks a lot of cinematic norms and standards, mm -hmm. uh, starting with this movie. Yeah, I, mean, I kept, I kept wondering, you know, when, how, how is he going to tie all of these things together? Like, are we ever going to have like all of them together in one scene? And we, we never really kind of do. Although, like I said, he does. I, right. I do appreciate the ending where it kind of comes full circle. Right. It's less of tying them together and more of just having three different storylines and having certain characters in those storylines interconnect with each other. Yeah, I think for me, they're more connected in theme 
Mm-hmm. And not necessarily the events of, of each act. Right. I feel like the, this movie just has such a big inspiration on the zeitgeist and other media, like I said, like like the Grand Theft Auto series and video games was heavily inspired oh, by sure. this movie. All right. So any other thoughts before we get into the beats of the film? Um, no, I think let's just let's jump into it. Let's jump in. And so we uh, open with the diner scene, right? With this bank robber couple. Pumpkin and Honey Bunny. Pumpkin and Honey Bunny. <laughs> Played oh. by Tim Roth and Amanda Plummer. You you know Tim Roth from the previous Quentin Tarantino film you saw. Yes, I do, for sure. Reservoir Dogs. I recognized him right away. Yeah. yeah. He was the main character in that film. Yeah. And so these guys are kind of like a Bonnie and Clyde right. character pair. Ride or die. Yeah. <laughs> and so they're, uh, they normally rob banks, but they're having a conversation here about the possibility of robbing diners because you can take people's wallets, their necklaces. All right, yeah, so this couple decides to rob the diner, and this is where we get the opening credits with the surf music. Mm-hmm. Uh, we get the Band Apart logo, which is Quentin Tarantino's production incorporation, I guess his production company. The logo is the Reservoir Dogs picture. Right, like a silhouette. Right. Then we get that this movie was produced by the Weinstein brothers, <laughs> unfortunately. And then the next scene, we're introduced to Vincent and Jules, played by John Travolta and Sam Jackson. And let's talk about that hair, both of these hairstyles. Ooh, <laughs> man, those hair, it was, I have a question, uh, maybe you don't know, was the hair real? Like, are, were those, oh. were there, was there any prosthetic, one, definitely not. Good question. was there any that prosthetic a, hair That involved? was a wig, very <laughs> bad job I'm of sure. a wig. Yeah, I'm pretty yeah. sure you're right, Haiti. I think uh, both of them were wigs, to be you honest. think so? Quentin had originally wanted Sam Jackson's hair to be a big old afro. Yeah. But they later decided, you know what, let's just do some jerry curls. <laughs> you know, it was great, not gonna lie. Yeah, it fits the character. It absolutely does. A little cartoonish, but, you know, this movie's pretty cartoonish. It is. <laughs> it just adds to the whole aesthetic of the movie. It's great. So they're driving to an apartment to collect a debt. They have a great discussion about... Uh, foot massages? About foot massages here, right? Right. How Marcellus Wallace, their boss, had apparently thrown somebody else off a balcony for giving his wife a foot massage. You remember Antoine Rockamora? Half black, half Samoan. Used to call him Tony Rocky Howard. Yeah, I think I know what you mean. What about him? Well, Marcellus fucked him up good. Word around the campfire is it was on account of Marcellus Wallace's wife. So what'd he do, fucker? Nothing that bad. Well, then what then? Gave her a foot massage. Foot massage? That's it? Mm-hmm. Sent a couple of cats over to his place. They took him out on his patio, threw his ass over the balcony. Nigga fell four stories. So what are your feelings, Ryan? Is a foot massage just a foot massage? Or is there a little more to the foot massage? Have you ever given anyone a foot massage? I think a foot massage, if it's not a contract with money involved, then I think it's pretty sensual. Really? Yeah. Okay. Would you, if I just started giving you a foot massage, Josh, would you think that was weird? (laughs) I mean, I've given my wife plenty of foot massages. Your wife. And 90% of the time, it does not lead to sex. I have, I have something to input. I'm taking a break oh, from my homework for a second. This is uh, Josh's <laughs> wife, Marissa. How did you get here? That's crazy. You heard um, from my wife, Haiti, earlier. This is Marissa. From a woman, my, my women's perspective, it is not sexual. There you go. Right. I, I, I didn't say sexual. I said sensual. Well, but wait a minute. Okay, may, maybe okay. slightly, but okay. depending on how it's done. If it was like, if I was sitting next to my guy friend and he just like started rubbing my foot, I'd be like, damn, can I get you some lotion? Because that'll feel better. <laughs> okay. But, but so, it so, so like you, you would feel, on. But okay. then if, if he was like But would you feel that's it, normal? Would you feel that's normal to just have a random friend start massaging your feet? Jesus massaged okay everyone's feet on the Last Supper. It wasn't <laughs> sensual when he rubbed the apostle's feet. I mean, right? Now, Do you think it was sensual when that chick, like, was it Mary Magdalene washed that, his feet with her tears? Was that Mary Magdalene? I don't think it was. I think it was sick. Any religious scholars, please uh, let us know. Was that Mary Magdalene massaging Jesus' feet? This debate is very intense, and we need an answer. Okay. Were foot massages sensual in the New Testament? I don't think so, because if you think about how it is presented, it's like you walking in your feet, especially in the desert area, you always do and then for these people it's like he's a god he's a god so they want to clean his feet well it was, it was more something like that. all right but, but let's talk about consent here 
Marissa, you Do can it. wash my feet anytime. Let's you can wash my feet and rub them, <laughs> but I will maybe reject back massages. Okay, so so oh. guys, guys, that if, shit is sexual. If a, okay. if a foot massage is not sexual or sensual, do you need consent to give somebody a foot massage? Well, if I put my feet on your if, lap, um, you massage <laughs> please do a massage. Do you need consent? Marissa, I would say any. I would say any touching requires yeah. consent. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. All right, but it's not necessarily sensual or sexual. Yeah. No. All right. So Jules and Vincent are driving to an apartment to collect a debt. A briefcase that unlocks with the code six six six. I their... missed that. Dang it. Yeah, that's the code that unlocks this briefcase that lights up when you open it. <laughs> Who knows what's in that freaking briefcase? <laughs> um, for their boss, Mar Marcellus Wallace, played by Ving Rhames. Um, so, what do you think of this pair? I mean, uh, obviously, we talked about their uh, just ability to have natural dialogue together and just go back and forth. Yeah. Um, I I kind of you know just relating this movie to our podcast in our history. Did this remind you of a pair of Mormon missionaries? That was the first thing I thought when they were walking down the street <laughs> carrying a briefcase. They look like missionaries with, of course, the hair, obviously, but... The suit and ties. The suit and... White suit, black white suit shirt, and black suit, black tie. Absolutely. Yeah, sure. You know, they have the nice suits. They have kind of a, a senior and junior companion kind of <laughs> dynamic, right? Like Jules is the, the senior companion, Vincent yeah. being the less experienced one. Yeah, I can see receiving, that. Well, Jules is definitely the one in charge. And he's giving his companion, Vincent, some advice, uh -huh. right? Because uh, Vincent has this trepidation about taking Mia Wallace, uh, Marcellus's wife, on this date while Marcellus is out of town. Well, it's not a date. He's just, you know, going to the movies or, you know, just eating or whatever. Taking her for a night out, right? Just taking her for a night out. Let her um, have a good time. But other, like, kind of missionary similarities, you know, we have Jules quoting scripture. The same scripture a few times. The path of the righteous man is beset on all sides by the inequities of the selfish and the tyranny of evil men. Blessed is he who in the name of charity and goodwill shepherds the weak through the valley of darkness. For he is truly his brother's keeper and the finder of lost children. And I will strike down upon thee with great vengeance and furious anger those who attempt to poison and destroy my brother. And you will know my name is the law when I lay my vengeance upon thee. We have them talking shit while they're not quote unquote proselyting or, or doing business, you know? <laughs> uh, but when it's time to do business, that's where they're focused. Sure, they're all business. And then Marcellus Wallace, I find, is kind of like this mission leader. <laughs> <laughs> so who's Bruce Willis? Is he like the rogue missionary? <laughs> <laughs> right, the, the rogue missionary who... Uh, He's ready to skip out of town and go home. Who doesn't follow the mission leader's orders. Mm -hmm. Right, so um, they talk about this upcoming quote-unquote date, whatever you want to call it, with Mia. Sam Jackson, we find out, is a very intimidating hitman. He's very intimidating in this role. Yeah. When they get to the apartment to get this briefcase, I mean, they end up killing three out of the four guys there immediately. He's, he's pretty cold-blooded. Yeah. I mean, kind of, you know, the guys kind of did double-cross Marcellus. Right. But, yeah, these were like... I mean, this is intense, though. I mean, he's like getting up in his space, eating his hamburger, drinking the rest <laughs> of his Sprite and stuff. Like, just dragging it out. Obviously, he knows he's going to kill him the whole time. So, just pretty, immediately pretty interrupting cold. one of the guys. I didn't ask you a goddamn thing. <laughs> yeah, he's pretty cold and cruel, but also kind of hilarious at the same time somehow. I don't know. You know, it's still funny to watch. The next scene shows Marcellus Wallace bribing Butch, the boxer, played by Bruce Willis. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wants Bruce to take a fall and lose his next boxing match. And at this point, we just see Marcellus from behind. Like, we don't right. get a shot of, of his face, right? right? So he's this very mysterious bad guy, this mysterious uh, person. Um, there's this Band-Aid on the back of his neck. Did you notice that? I did notice that, although I wasn't sure what if that had a, any kind of meaning. So there's different... Oh, was this maybe after... No, never mind. So, so there, yeah. he has a band-aid pretty much throughout the whole film. There's some different interpretations of this. Mm -hmm. 
Ving Rhames has stated himself that he, you know, just had an injury that he was healing from. Or it was a scar that he didn't want to appear in the film. But there's some people that have interpreted this in biblical ways. Oh. Where there's a belief that people without a soul, the devil steals the soul through the back of the neck. And that's oh. why he has the band-aid there. <laughs> I have never heard that somehow in all my years of Mormonism, Ryan. Right. <laughs> <laughs> This is the part where listeners throw their hands up and say, what the fuck? Kind of like my wife, Haiti, just did. <laughs> the next scene shows Vincent purchasing heroin from Lance, his drug dealer. Mm, yeah. Played by Eric Stoltz. And he's doing this just to kind of relax for his date with Mia. Right. right. Eric Stoltz, I just had a little bit of trivia on him. Did you know that he was originally slated to play Marty McFly in the Back to the Future movies? Yeah, I actually did know that because yeah. I watched that I watched that darn movies that made us show about <laughs> Back to the Future. And yeah, like they actually filmed. I didn't a know that was the of, same guy. They filmed a bunch of scenes yeah. with him. And they changed like halfway through because they were like, this isn't working. And this he was kind of difficult to work with. And Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I guess he's one of those actors that's kind of full of himself. Mm -hmm. But I thought he was good in this role. He's getting kind of funny. <laughs> <laughs> he shoots up there with the heroin and drives to Wallace's home to pick up Mia for their, for their date. Uh, they go to this 50s retro diner called Jackrabbit Slims. What do you think of this diner? Dude, I would go to that diner. Right? It looks That's cool as hell, right? Does this place actually exist? I think it was an actual diner that they uh, scouted for the film. Yeah. Um, but it, yeah, I mean, I've, I've seen similar places, not necessarily one that has, you know, where the, the booth you sit in is an actual car. Dude, that's awesome. Sign me up. Let's go. <laughs> I want Buddy Holly to serve me my meal. Yeah, they have Buddy Holly played by Steve Buscemi. Right. In this film. Hi, I'm Buddy. Can I get you? Douglas Sirk steaks. How do you want that cooked? Run to a crisp or bloody as hell? Bloody as hell and... What about you, Peggy Sue? I'll have the Durward Kirby Burger. Bloody. A $5 shake. How do you want that shake? Martin and Lewis or Amos and Andy? Martin and Lewis. Uh, they had, you know, Elvis's, Marilyn Monroe's, James Dean's walking um, around, mm -hmm. Zorro's. Ed, Ed Sullivan. Ed Sullivan as the host. <laughs> <laughs> really big shoe. <laughs> And then uh, they order some milkshakes, and then they enter into this dance yes. competition. $5 milkshakes. Yeah. They're pretty good. <laughs> Got to be a pretty damn good milkshake, right? <laughs> I don't know. Like, I, that seems pretty normal for today's standards, it, like with inflation, right? Like, $5 would be a yeah. mediocre milkshake. <laughs> $5 is almost like a McDonald's milkshake at this point. Pretty much. So, yeah, they enter this dance competition. They win by twisting their asses off. They're really good at twisting. Pretty good at twisting. <laughs> you know, the famous... The two finger, two finger across the yeah, eyes. The famous moves. They return to Mia's home, and while there, Mia finds the heroin in <gasps> Vincent's pocket. She mistakes it for cocaine, I'm assuming, because she snorts it. <laughs> Apparently, you're not supposed to do that. Yeah, I don't think you're supposed to snort cocaine, or snort, snort heroin. You snort cocaine, but not heroin. Apparently, that just messes you up. She ODs on the shit. Vincent's like, what the fuck do I do? So <laughs> he doesn't want to take her to the ER because that'll just fuck things up and it'll let, you know, Marcellus Wallace right. know what's going on and that could be a death sentence for him. Mm -hmm. So he takes her to Lance's house, the drug dealer, and Lance is like, what the fuck, dude? Why, why are you bringing her here? <laughs> nope, he's not pleased. You know, crashes into his bushes. <laughs> And drags Mia's body in and, uh, you know, they decide, okay, we got to do something. So Lance decides to uh, help her out with an, an adrenaline shot. I ain't giving her, I ain't giving her the shot. I never done this yeah, before. I ain't never done it before either, all right? I ain't starting now. Look, you brought her here and that means that you're going to give her the shot. The day that I bring an ODM bitch to your house, then I give her the shot. Give her the shot. All right, all right tell me what to do. All right, count to three. All right, ready? One. Two. Three! If you're all right, then say something. Something? That was fucking trippy. <laughs> yeah, this is a very uncomfortable scene. I have to say, it's like pretty intense. How, how uncomfortable was this for you? It was it was a little difficult to watch, I have yeah. to say. So this movie, apparently, when it uh, premiered at Cannes Film Festival, mm -hmm. there were some people that fainted during oh, this part of the just, movie. The, just needles are really a problem for some people. So Yeah, so they have this big buildup of them, you know, about to stick the needle into her heart, directly into her heart. 
<laughs> you have to push really hard to get yeah. through the breastplate, so he's like a winding up. A stabbing motion. Yeah, jeez. Oh, so yeah, when they eventually pump her heart full of adrenaline, we hear the, the stick of the needle, and then she immediately wakes up out of her overdose. But, you know, Vincent and Mia then agree to never discuss this with Marcellus because it would be bad for both of them. Yes. Um, then the next scene is uh, we, we get to the next storyline about the gold watch. The gold watch <laughs> that went from your father's ass to my ass and now to you, son. This watch was on your daddy's wrist when he was shot. It was captured from a Vietnamese prison camp. He knew that if the gooks ever saw the watch, it would be confiscated. The way your dad looked at it, this watch was your birthright, so he hid it in his ass. Five long years he wore this watch up his ass. He died of dysentery. He'd give me the watch. I hid this uncomfortable hunk of metal up my ass two years. After seven years, I was sent home to my family. And now, little man, I gave the watch to you. <laughs> Right. This Christopher is, Walken. Yeah. Yeah. We get a flashback of Christopher Walken introducing himself to a young Butch, uh, Bruce Willis's character, as a child. His dad passed away in the, uh, I guess, the Vietnam War? Mm -hmm. As a Korea. POW? As a POW. I'm assuming it's Vietnam, but right. maybe, maybe and, it's Korean. Um, he's handing a, a, a watch as an heirloom to uh, Butch. And yeah, he mentions how the father had to carry the watch up his ass. And then when he died, he carried the watch up his ass. <laughs> And so it went from ass to ass to Butch. <laughs> so nice. So it's a, it holds a special place in Butch's heart. And colon. <laughs> Do you think he ever put it up his ass? <laughs> Just to try it out? I don't know, man. I and then, know. then he wakes up from this flashback. Obviously, he was remembering it as a dream. And um, he's about to go into this fight where Marcellus wants him to, 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 to throw the fight, right? And um, he doesn't do this. No. In he fact, he bets on himself, doesn't he? Bets on on himself, so wins, I guess, double the money or whatever it is, and ends up killing his opponent. Yeah. We later find out. Um, he of course, enters, he doesn't know. Right. He, he doesn't know, know until he later finds out from the cab driver who mm -hmm. is helping At, him escape. And asks him, what's it like to kill somebody? So he double crosses Marcellus. He's planning on escaping with his girlfriend, but she forgot to grab his good old heirloom, his watch. And so he returns to his apartment to get the watch and finds an SMG, a submachine gun on the counter. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the luck that this guy has, right? Like, finds the gun, grabs it, and then we see Vincent Vega exiting the bathroom. And then... Butch just pumps him full of lead. Yep, he ends up back on the toilet, reading <laughs> reading his book. Butch shoots and kills him. While Butch is driving back on the road, Marcellus is walking across the street. <laughs> and he's like, what the fuck? <laughs> the two meat eyes. And Butch rams Wallace with his car. Uh, they have this fight, you know, they regain consciousness or whatever, and they uh, Marcellus grabs his gun and shoots at, at Butch. Hitting um, an innocent bystander? Yeah, it just killed Jeez. some random woman on the street. My God. Sorry. Oops. <laughs> that, that's why I'm saying that this this movie heavily, heavily inspired Grand Theft Auto. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. That's... So many aspects of this film. But yeah, they the fight escalates to this pawn shop, which is like <laughs> one of these, you know, this hillbilly pawn shop. Anywhere pawn shop. Confederate flags all over the place. And he's like, hold on a second. Nobody gets to kill anybody in here except for Zed or yeah. me. Yeah. So he puts them, you know, sticks them up at a uh, shotgun yeah. point, right? And then, you know, ties them up and, and drags them to this basement area under the pawn shop where... Slash torture chamber. <laughs> yeah, torture chamber where Marcellus is raped. He's literally raped on uh, by Maynard, the, the shop owner, and a cop. His buddy cop named Zed. Right. The scene apparently is a reference to the movie Deliverance. Have you heard of or seen Deliverance? I have not. So you've heard the banjo music that goes... Oh, John Voight? Yeah, with John Voight. Okay. I've never seen it, but... Burt, Burt Reynolds, I believe. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it's just these hillbillies that... Do uh, they do that in that movie? They oh. rape a, a city folk. Okay, well... 
That was a little uncomfortable. Yeah. Very but, you know, good for Bruce Willis. Because he escapes. And then right before walking out the door, he has a little strike of conscience. Yeah. And he's like, because he can hear something that's going Marcellus on. Marcellus being raped. Yeah. yeah. Maybe, he, I don't know if he re- realizes what's going on or I not. But he, he knew. You think, think he did? Yeah. Okay. Well. I mean, we, we had, he kills the gimp before he escapes. So he knew what was going true. on. That's true. That's true. So he decides to turn back. To save and, Marcellus. And... Maybe he did that because of his conscience saying do it, but or, or for I, selfish reasons. I think maybe, yeah, I think maybe he did it to get out of his his debt that he owed Marcellus, right? To which not, is to not have to run his whole life, right? Which is eventually what happens, right? Right. So he he goes through the pawn shop. He's going through these weapons. Hmm. Maybe a hammer would work. Oh hmm, no, no. Maybe this bat would work. Oh no. Here's a chainsaw. It's like the three little pigs, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> and then he finds the one that's just right. right the katana sword hanging on the wall which uh yeah quentin tarantino loves his katanas as we find out later in kill bill he grabs the katana goes down to the basement kills maynard the shop owner and is about to kill zed the cop but he steps aside and allows marcellus to do that job with the shotgun well just to maim him right <laughs> because then he's gonna call his boys to come Torch. get all medieval on his ass <laughs> Side, you okay? Nah, man. I'm pretty fucking far from okay. Let me tell you what, Nat. I'ma call a couple of hard pipe-hitting niggas to go to work on the homes here with a pair of pliers and a blowtorch. You hear me talking, hillbilly boy? I ain't through with you by damn sight. I'ma get medieval on your ass. That's a great line. I know, that was good. Um, so yeah, and then Marcellus is like, you know, he doesn't want anybody to find out what happened here, so right. he's like, you know, you're free to go, just never speak of this. And never come back. Never, yeah, get out of LA, never come back. And so, with his deck clear, Butch drives back to his girlfriend at the motel on Zed's chopper, the cop's motorcycle. Oh, it's not a motorcycle, Ryan, it's a chopper. <laughs> it's a chopper. You know, the girlfriend's like, who's Zed? And he's like, Zed's dead, baby, Zed's dead. <laughs> Get on, get on the bike. Let's go. <laughs> Next scene, we return to earlier. So, like we said, this movie jumps around uh, where Jules and Vincent have just killed Brett at the apartment. And another ind- individual emerges from hiding and shoots at both of them, but completely misses them. It's a miracle. Yeah. <laughs> no Divine intervention. You told me that that was a miracle. Yeah. <laughs> So this, this kind of reminds me of the, you know, I have to bring up the Fast and Furious franchise on every film. So oh, let's go. In the latest movie, Fast and Furious 9, Tyrese's character has a similar dialogue to this where he says, you know, we should have died so many times. <laughs> it's a miracle that we're still alive. What are you talking about? You just, no, Tommy, it's a miracle. Yeah. I got, look at that. Yeah, he, he <laughs> believes that it's divine intervention. And so, yeah, I, I, I kind of want to, you know, this kind of relates back to how we related Jules and Vincent to Mormon elders. How, <laughs> how as a missionary, you kind of relate these small happenstances to miracles. <laughs> But uh, you know, it, not just missionaries, but li- members and anyone. A- yeah, I mean, any member, anything can be a miracle for right. you. Right, Find, finding lost car keys Lo- can be a miracle. Lost car keys is like the example that everyone talks about. You know, pray to God and He help me help me find my car keys. God has of, nothing better to do than find yes. a Mormon's car keys. Of, of course, children's in Africa dying, yeah. and He's helping Mormons find their keys. Yeah. Okay, I have a little interjection. Literally, I was taught growing up, if I had enough faith, I could pray for anything and it would like happen. So I literally grew up in a family who hardcore believed that if I couldn't find my keys, the first thing that somebody would say is, say a prayer. Say a prayer and Heavenly Father will help you find them. I kid you not. Like, I know it's kind of a joke and I don't know if every family was... As intense? As intense as mine, but... I think there's degrees of tense when it comes to Mormon families and and how much they believe in the power of prayer. For sure, but you know, it's so irritating to me though. Again, we we try not we try not to bash people in the church because we love we have a lot of loved ones that are members. I love so many people who are like but as it's, strict you know, as they come. Right, but when you're taught from from an infant that prayer is powerful and that you 
whatever you pray for will become reality for you, it, it, it makes sense because then any little thing becomes a miracle to you and it's because of your prayer, you know? So it's, I don't want to put fault on people for, for their beliefs, you know? Right. And I, I like to consider myself an empath sometimes. And if I were to put myself in Jules' position where I was being shot at and then I look up behind me and there's holes in the wall directly behind me but there's no holes in my body, I might consider that a miracle. I mean, it's literally in like the out, like the outline of his <laughs> cartoon body almost, you know? Yeah. Yeah, like right out of a cartoon. <laughs> yeah, he, he considers this a, a turning point in his career, in his life. They decide to take the only survivor from the apartment, Marvin, uh, the Phil Lamar character, um, with them in the car and... While in the car, Jules is discussing the miracle, and Vincent, while rebuttaling his argument, accidentally shoots Marvin in the face. Dude, I saw that shit coming. Like, he <laughs> leans over with the gun right there, and I'm like, dude, that's not safe. What are you doing? Yeah. And then, of course, you know, brains everywhere. Yeah, so, so the interior of the car is just gross and full of brain matter and blood. So they have to clean this up because they're driving in plain daylight, right? Mm -hmm. So they drive to uh, one of Joel's friends' house, Jimmy, played by Quentin Tarantino himself. Uh, Marcellus ends up sending the boys a cleaner by the name of Mr. Wolf, right. who's played by another one of Quentin Tarantino's favorite actors, Harvey Keitel. Right. Um, from Reservoir Dogs. Yeah, from Reservoir Dogs. He's sent there to solve the problem. And then we get the last scene in the diner where Jules announces his retirement to Vincent. That's right, because he was touched... By the, oh, he felt the touch of God. <laughs> touched he by was who? Touched, touched by, by an angel. Touched, touched by an angel. Who touched you? God? Did he touch you? Oh. Okay. Oh, shit. This got dark. <laughs> no. He felt the touch of God in the, his miracle that he experienced earlier that day. So he decides to walk the earth like... Like Cain. Uh, the Cain from Kung Fu. Oh, no. oh, is that from... <laughs> no. no, I thought he was referencing the Bible. Like Cain. Yeah, you're right. Although, why would he want to be Cain? Cain's a bad guy. He killed his brother and was, like, banished to live forever, I thought. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe he considers himself a bad guy, but redeemed somehow. Is Cain redeemed somehow? I don't know. I heard Cain is Bigfoot. Cain, you remember yeah, that? according to Mormon lore, especially, um, what's his name, the apostle that wrote... McConkie? Mark? According to Bruce R. McConkie, Cain is Bigfoot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so read Mormon doctrine. <laughs> Google is your friend if you want to find out some weird Mormon shit. And I had never heard that until today, three or four months ago, and I couldn't believe it. I laughed my head off. <laughs> it's pretty funny. He, he has some interesting thoughts about the three Nephites and dinosaurs. Sam, Sam Jackson does. No, Bruce R. McConkie. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, in the diner, while Vincent is in the bathroom, the robber couple, Tim Roth and Amanda Plummer, they begin to demand stuff from the crowd, you know, wallets and things. They, right. they go to Jules, and they demand the briefcase. Nobody ever robs restaurants. Why not? You catch with their pants down. They're not expecting to get robbed. I'm ready. Let's do it. Right now. Right here. Same as last time, remember? <coughs> Your crowd control. I handle employees. Mm -hmm. I love you. I love you, honey bunny. Everybody be cool, this is a robbery! Any of you fucking pricks move! And I'll execute every motherfucking last one of you! And at this point, Jules overpowers Pumpkin, the Tim Roth character, mm -hmm. and we get a old-fashioned stamp. Vincent comes out and points the gun at the couple. Jules kind of talks them down, right? He says, you know what? You guys leave with the money... We'll pretend this never happened, you know? Right. And Vince is like, if you pay that motherfucker for, you know, $1,500, I'll shoot him myself. <laughs> and he says, no, no, I am paying him for his life. Yeah. So Jules allows them to leave with their, their cash. And then Jules and Vincent quietly ex exit the diner. End credits. Yeah, and man. that's Pulp Fiction. That was awesome. I love the, I loved the ending. I loved how, yeah. you know, it came back to the diner and you get to see this cool connection. I love the dialogue. I love them sitting at the table talking about their shit, about miracles and him retiring. Just that same connection that you see at the beginning of the film. It was awesome. Ties up in a pretty little package. <laughs> yeah, so um, why don't we go ahead and score this film. Pulp Fiction from 1994. I'll go ahead and go first. This is just a fantastic film. 
I love how it breaks the norms and standards of old Hollywood and brought in just a new generation of directors and screenwriters and inspired a bunch of filmmakers. This film is referenced in so much media. I just, I, I, I'm a huge fan of Quentin Tarantino. I'm a huge fan of most of the people involved in this film, minus the Weinstein brothers, fuck them, especially Harvey. I'm going to score Pulp Fiction A, Perfect Five, dun dun dun. Golden Idols. Dun dun dun. You know, I have a hard time giving perfect scores. I have not given a perfect score yet. Not even for my most favorite one that we've watched so far, which is probably The, the Shining. Shining. Yeah. Did I give The Shining a four? I believe so. Yeah. yeah. I can't say that it's better than The Shining. Yes, I can. I'm just gonna. I'm not gonna give it a perfect score because okay. I have to, like this movie. You you've seen. You've had a history with. It's influenced your life. It can. I think you're. I think it's awesome that you're giving it a perfect score. Just for me, coming to it at a later age and maybe not having as good um, as much of an appreciation or history with the movie, I don't think I'm going to give it a perfect score, but I'll do a four and a half. Wow. That's as perfect for me as it's going to get right That's now. That's hella good. That's the yeah. best score you've given to a movie so far. It is. I enjoyed this film. It was a lot Better of fun. Better than The Shining. Better than The Shining. All right. The fact that you can say that says a lot. So yeah, four and a half and five golden, I was going to say stars. Golden Idols is our rubric. Were we saying stars? I think we're saying golden idols, right? No, oh, I I hope I didn't misspeak. Because, no, no, no. no, no. no. We're, we're pretty drunk at this Go, point. <laughs> golden idols, it golden idols, it is. We're gonna patent that or something. Okay. <laughs> what are we gonna watch uh, for our next episode, Josh? What are we going to watch for our next episode? I don't think we've decided yet. Let's. I take believe a look we at should list. pick a Christmas movie because oh, we are okay. in the month of December. Right on. So. We're going to do the most epic Christmas film of all time. We are going to watch Die Hard. Hell yeah. Let's go. Another film with Bruce Willis. He, who was Ooh, great. Yeah, back film. to back Bruce Willis. Let's yeah. go. All right. So tune in next week for our takes on Die Hard. And do you think we can relate it somehow to our Mormon experience? Um, I think we'll find a way. Okay. Do you have something in mind already? Because you've seen the film. I have no idea. Oh, okay. <laughs> we'll figure it out. I mean, well, it is about Christmas, so we can talk True. about Christmas a little okay. bit. But Sounds good. Tune in next week, listeners. Thank you so much. We love you all. And have a great December. Enjoy your family. Enjoy those that you call your family. And, yeah, keep on listening. And your friends, which are also the family that you choose. Hell yeah. Right on. Adios, everybody. Bye-bye. Samuel Jackson is the foot-fucking-master, apparently. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs>